he had Jacob, Jacob he had Judah in his kin. Then Perez and Zerah came from Judah's woman Tamar. Perez he brought Hezron up and then came Aram, then Amminadab, then Nashan, who was then the dad of Salmon, who with Rahab fathered Boaz. Ruth, she married Boaz, who had Obed, who had Jesse. Jesse, he had David, who we know as king. David, he had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife. Solomon, well, you own the whim. He had good old Rehoboam, followed by Abijah, who had Asa. Asa had Jehoshaphat, had Joram, had Isaiah, who had Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah. Followed by Manasseh, who had Amon, who was Amen, who was father. Of a good boy named Josiah, who grandfathered Jehoiakim, who caused the Babylonian captivity because he was a liar. And then he had Shealtiel, who begat Zerubbabel, who had Abiud, who had Eliakim. Eliakim had Azer, who had Zadok, who had Achim. Achim was the father of Eliab. Then he had Eliezer, who had Nathan, who had Jacob. Listen very closely, I don't want to sing this twice. Jacob was the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, mother of Christ. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, that is a musical introduction to our scripture today. If you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them at this point in time? Uh, you can find a few Bibles in your pew back, or you can grab your own and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew as we uh, formally begin our sermon series, The King in His Kingdom, taking a look at Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And we will be at the very beginning, Matthew chapter 1, taking a look at the genealogy of Jesus, chapter 1, verse 1, running all the way through verse 17. Again, that was a musical introduction to our scripture uh, this morning. Uh, kind of fun and enjoyable. You know, I don't know about you, but uh, when I start to read the Gospel of Matthew, it's very easy for me to begin it and to see the genealogy at the beginning and just to skip to verse 18. And uh, if you are honest, you might do that as well, because we in this culture uh, don't see uh, much practical use in genealogies. We kind of get bored with funny names. Uh, but for the audience that Matthew was writing originally, uh, ancestry and genealogies were particularly important especially when Matthew begins his gospel by claiming that Jesus, this Jesus, is the Messiah. A loaded front-end statement. He says, this Jesus is king. He is the promised Messiah. And I'm going to show you that he has the legal right to the throne of David. So, Matthew chapter 1. You know, many people these days enjoy researching their uh, ancestry. I don't know if you've done any ancestry work uh, or not, uh, forming your family tree. It's kind of a fun thing to investigate where you came from, what your ancestors did or did not do. And 
Well, my dad is really no exception to that. Uh, he started a few years ago to really get into this ancestry thing. And so he has worked on it uh, along with some of his family members for quite some time. And uh, though he has a long way to go, uh, he, he uh, of note, traced his family lineage all the way back to the 1800s, uh, all the way back to two particular towns in Germany where both, I guess, of his, uh, uh, his family emanated from these two particular towns in Germany over 200 years ago. He also told me of note that in his uh, lineage, he found three pastors, one of which is me. So there you go. Uh, you know, you never know what you might find when you start to dig into your family tree. For instance, you might find a host of influential and successful people, like in the genealogy of one Jonathan Edwards. He was the 19th century New England preacher and pastor whose family lineage includes, and I quote, one U.S. vice president, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 professors, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, and 100 missionaries. Wow, that's quite the family tree. However, you might discover that you descended from a bunch of crooks and scoundrels, like the genealogy of one man by the name of Max Jukes, J-U-K-E-S. Now, his legacy was discovered when the family trees of 42 different men in the New York prison system was traced back to him. Now, his genealogy includes, here we go, seven murderers, 60 thieves, and 130 other convicts with an estimated cost to the New York State, 100, no, $1.2 million. (laughs) So... Contrast in men. So if one were to look at the genealogy of Jesus, if we were to take a look at the genealogy of Jesus, like we just did on this video, what would you expect to find? Would you expect it to be more like Jonathan Edwards? Or would you expect it to be more like Max Jukes's? Would it be filled with saints or would it be filled with sinners? Or maybe a little bit of both. What do you think, let me ask you this, what do you think a Christian can learn by looking at the genealogy of Jesus? Well, apparently, Matthew thought that one could learn lots of things by looking at the genealogy of Jesus, because that's precisely how he begins his gospel. Matthew is going to give us a full portrait of the life and person of Jesus, and he begins with a list of names. He begins with a genealogy. And his aim, his goal, is to show that Jesus is legally qualified to be Israel's king. The genealogy can be broken down into three main parts, as you can see behind me. First of all, we see the genealogy introduced in chapter 1, verse 1. The second and largest section is the genealogy itemized, verses 2 through 16, where we get a list of names. Third, the genealogy is interpreted, if you will, in verse 17, as Matthew gives us a sort of summary theological statement at the end in verse 17. So let's work our way through this, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, where the genealogy is introduced. Now Matthew begins his gospel with these tone-setting words. Look with me on the screen or in your Bible. Matthew writes, This is the genealogy of Jesus. So we know who we're talking about here. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Your translation might say the Christ. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. The son of David, the son of Abraham. So I want you to see from the very beginning of this gospel, Matthew lays his cards on the table. 
He lays his cards on the table, and he says from the outset, he asserts that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. He is Israel's Christ. We saw last week that this is one of the two major purposes for him writing, to indicate and to prove and to show that he was Israel's promised king. Now, what does Messiah or Christ mean? See, here Matthew says Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Now, Messiah is the Old Testament equivalent to the New Testament word Christ. So they mean the same thing. It simply means the anointed one. And it came throughout biblical history to refer to one a coming king, to a coming king who was from David's line, King David's line, who would rule both over Israel and over all the world, and whose kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. That's what Messiah or Christ means. And so from the outset, Matthew says, the Jesus I'm going to tell you about is this. He is the king. He is that one promised to David. He is Israel's coming king. And not only Israel's, he's the king of the world. He will establish his everlasting kingdom. Now, what does the name Jesus mean? We're so used to this name. We speak it so often, but it actually has a meaning. The word Jesus simply means Yahweh saves, right? Or or God saves. Indicating to us that Jesus would be the agent of God to bring salvation to the world. Salvation from sin, salvation from Satan, salvation from the curse, and even salvation from death. So we know at the beginning, this is Yahweh saves. This is, this is God saves, and he is the Messiah. Before Matthew officially gets into his list, we see that he links this Jesus to two particular Old Testament figures in reverse chronological order. He links this Jesus, Messiah, number one, to David, right? He says he is the son of David. And then number two, he says he is the son of Abraham. Friends, it's so easy for us to move past this and to get it, get through the list. But this is important because we see David showing up and we see Abraham showing up in this genealogy, but he puts these two men first. Why does he do that? Well, for at least three reasons. Quickly, number one, here Jesus is presented as fulfilling God's promises to each of these men. If you are familiar with your Bible, if you were a Jew listening to this, you would know immediately the name David and the the name Abraham would have all sorts of connotations, not the least of which would be God's promises to each of them. See, the mention of these two men remind us that God's, God promised, there was a promised king. He promised a king to rule over Israel, given in his covenant with David. And it would remind us of his promise his promise to bring universal blessings through that king with his covenant through Abraham. In essence, Matthew is saying, Jesus is that king. He is the king who fulfills God's promise to Abraham. He is the king who fulfills God's promise to David. Secondly, he does it because it signals that Matthew's genealogy, which we see that follows, is not a simple chronological list of Jesus' ancestors. As we'll see shortly, this is not a comprehensive list of each successive generation. That's how we in America think of genealogies, but the Jews did genealogies often very different. This is a limited genealogy, and it reveals Jesus' legal right to be king. We'll talk about that shortly. Third, he names these two names because it establishes a pattern. At the very outset of the gospel, there is a a pattern, and it's a hugely important pattern that Matthew wants to communicate to his original audience and to me and you. 
and it's this. It establishes a pattern of king before kingdom. King before kingdom blessings. Dr. Constable puts it this way. He says, as the gospel unfolds, it becomes clear that the Jews needed to accept Jesus as the promised son of David before he would bring the, the, the blessings promised to Abraham. That is, if the Jews wanted the blessings of having an independent nation on the very land that God had promised them in Messiah's kingdom, they needed to accept Jesus as their Messiah, right? King before kingdom. King before kingdom. And that leads us to three bits of good news from Jesus' genealogy. See, it's here for a reason. It's here to teach us something. And there is all sorts of good news found in this genealogy, starting in verse 1. The first bit of good news that we get just from this initial verse is that, first of all, this person that we will be introduced to throughout the entirety of the gospel, this Jesus, we see that his intent is that he comes to save. He comes as our Savior. From the outset of this gospel, we find out about a Jesus, uh, about who Jesus is and what he's going to do. He is Yahweh saves. He is the one God will use to save people through personal faith in him. He saves us from our sins. He takes the penalty that we deserve on the cross. He saves us from Satan. He transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He saves us from the curse. Though we die physically, those who believe in him will never die spiritually, and one day we will be resurrected physically to overcome the very curse that God put on this earth. He is our Savior. Jesus saves. And friends, from the outset, if you're looking for good news, that's the best news that we could ever hear. Number two, we learn that God keeps his promises from this initial verse. This genealogy reminds us that God kept his promise to Abraham and God kept his promise to David. And friends, it shows us that we can be confident that God will keep his promises to us. So when God gives us promises in his word, friends, it's as good as gold. We can take it to the bank. Number three, and this is key. We must respond to the king to enjoy his kingdom. We must respond personally to the king before we are a part of and enjoy his kingdom. Just as Matthew was saying to his fellow Jews, you need to repent and accept the king before you get any kingdom blessing. So he calls on each one of us today to make a personal decision to respond positively to this king that will be unfolded in this gospel by accepting him as our Savior and as our Lord. See, we too will not enjoy any kingdom blessings. We cannot be a part of the kingdom of God until we personally trust in the king. And so friends, let me ask you, have you responded to the king Have you responded to his invitation through personal repentance from sin and self and self-righteousness and put all of your hope on this king who is also your savior? Any hope of heaven, any hope of right standing with God. Friends, we have to respond to the king if we're going to be a part of his kingdom. So, all of that from one verse. Let's move on. We see the genealogy introduced in verse 1. Now we see the genealogy itemized in verses 2 through 16. Now don't worry, we're not going to read through it again. It's a long list. You saw it on the video, but here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to point out four observations that if you read carefully through the list, the genealogy found in in verses 2 through 16, that will stand out and will teach. 
So in verses 2 through 16, we see the genealogy itself. It begins with Abraham, and it ends, of course, with Jesus. So observation number one. The first thing you would see if you were to go through this closely. First, this genealogy is commonly accepted, and I use that because it's not universally accepted, but I believe that this genealogy is a legal genealogy through the line of Joseph. It's a legal genealogy traced through the line of Joseph. What that means is that Matthew gives the legal line of descent from David. That is, stating who would be heir to the throne in each case. While I think the genealogy we see in Luke uh, most likely gives the actual descendants from David's family that belonged to Joseph. There is some debate here, so we can't be dogmatic. But keep in mind, what is Matthew's aim? What is Matthew's purpose? Matthew's aim is to show us clearly that Jesus is Messiah, right? He is the the king of Israel. So I think he utilizes a form that was commonly accepted uh, to Jews in that day that would suit his aim. Second, the second thing that would really stand out is that the genealogy is structured in such a way that it demonstrates that Jesus is reclaiming Israel's lost kingship. He has come and he said, I am the king. I belong on the throne. I'm reclaiming what is rightfully mine. So structurally, if you look through it, it may be structured like this in your Bible. The genealogy consists of three sections. Three sections, right? There are three major sections. You can look at your Bible and you can see it. Three major sections of names. And uh, three major sections of names. Uh, first, you can look at it through just who's listed, right? So let's, let's look at it uh, from a perspective of names, if you will. So the first section begins, right? We have it from Abraham to David. Second, we have it from Solomon to Jeconiah in verses 11 through 17. And finally, we see it from Jeconiah to Jesus, right? So you can look at it in that sense. Who begins the list and who ends the list? It's important to note, something that you'll notice is that each section ends with a very important person or event. So you can take a look at it from the perspective of events, if you will, right? So, if you take a look at the, at the screen behind me, the, the first section ends with David, right? That's significant. It's, it's a high point uh, for Israel, right? He is the epitome of Israel's kingship, right? King David, he is at the precipice, the pinnacle. So the, it, it, it ends on a, on a high note, if you will. The second section, right, it ends with this King Jeconiah. It's a low point because Israel goes into exile, a hugely important event in the life of Israel. And of course, third, the third section ends with the Messiah, right? It ends with Jesus. So you could look at it this way. What does the genealogy teach us about Israel's kingdom? Remember, this is a book about king and kingdom. It's about the coming king and his kingdom. So what does this genealogy have to show about kingdom, about kingdom? Well, you could put it this way. From David, uh, from Abraham to David, the first section you see the kingdom established, right? God promises that uh, from Abraham there would be a multitude of people, a nation, and then he gives them a king. So there is Israel's kingdom established. In the second, from David to the captivity, what, what do you see? You see that kingdom being destroyed, right? They are exiled. They lose their kingdom. Well, what about the third? from the captivity to Christ. Well, you could say you get the kingdom reestablished, right? As the rightful king has come back to claim his throne. Third, third major observation here. You notice what type of genealogy it is. 
You notice how it's structured. Third, uh, what stands out is the inclusion of women in the genealogy. Now, this would stand out to a first-century audience. Since Jews traced their heritage in those days through male ancestors, generally you see males in genealogies. But we get a list of five women in this genealogy that for an original audience, it would just pop off the page. It would stand out, right? And by Matthew mentioning each of these women, I think he is revealing something that he will flesh out later in the gospel. So let's just think about the list here. Let's take a look. Here are the women that we see in the genealogy. Most of them are in the first section, and then, of course, Mary is at the end. We get Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, <coughs> Bathsheba, and Mary. Now, let me ask you a quick question. Think about biblical history. What's associated with most of these women? Are these women that are particularly, like, uh, hi- highly thought of, right? Godly and righteous women. Well, well some of them, for sure. But So what about Tamar? Well, we know that she was guilty of incest. What about Rahab, right? Rahab, she was uh, known as uh, Rahab the what? She was known as poor woman, like throughout all of history. You know, she is in the hall of, of faith, for heaven's sakes, in Hebrews 11. And she's praised. But forever we will remember her as Rahab the prostitute, right? Rahab the harlot. What about Ruth? Well, she was a pretty good girl, but remember her roots, right? She was a pagan. She converted to Israel's religion. She was a a Moabite convert. And where did the Moabites come from? Every Jew knew that the Moabites descended from Lot when he slept with his own daughters. Oh, boy. And there she is in the genealogy, right? Uh, What about Bathsheba? Well, she had an affair with King David. And she's not even mentioned by name here. Each of these mentions prepare us for the final unexpected appearing of the name of Mary in the genealogy, the unwed teenage mother. So we have a whole host of people. We have those who are sexually immoral, culturally and ethnically rejected, spiritually questionable, and they all show up in the genealogy of the king. Now, men, before you get all high and mighty, if you take a look at the men on the genealogy, it's not very pretty either, okay? So I'm not picking on the women here. It just would stand out to the first century audience. And it reveals Matthew's emphasis here. The inclusion of these and the other men as well show us that Matthew is going to portray Jesus as one who comes to seek and to save sinners. Jesus would come as one who would come to seek and to save the lost regardless of their race, regardless of their class, regardless of their culture, regardless of what they have done or would do. Jesus came for these type of people. Friends, are we any different than them? Jesus comes for me and you as well. Fourth, Matthew prepares us for the virgin birth. Verse 16 stands out in particular. A special interest here in this final section is a change in the wording. If you were to read this and just read it through, you would see a pattern. And it would be something like, so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, right? It becomes pretty clear that that's the predominant way Matthew's structuring this, the father of so-and-so. And yet, when we get to Jesus, it changes. It's different. Notice verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, okay, normal. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Now, wait a minute. That breaks the cycle, doesn't it? Jacob, the father of Joseph, 
And Joseph was the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. It doesn't follow the pattern. It doesn't follow the pattern. It doesn't say that Joseph was the father of Jesus. Church, is that important? Shake your head. Yes. This is very important. Extremely important. It doesn't say that Joseph was the father of Jesus, but rather Mary was the mother of Jesus. This is because Jesus was not a physical descendant from Joseph. He was the legal descendant from Joseph because Joseph adopted Jesus as his son. So, Matthew is setting us up. As we look forward to next week, Matthew is setting us up. He is setting us up to discover that Jesus was not only fully human, but his birth was unlike any that has ever happened or will ever come. He was not only human, but he was divine. He's setting us up for the virgin birth, which we'll see next week. So, a couple other points. Good news from Jesus' genealogy. What do we learn from this larger section that is good news for you and I? Well, the first point is that we are sinners in need of saving. And this is good news because if we don't realize our plight, we'll never turn and bow the knee to the Savior. We need to know our plight. Jesus came to save sinners, sinners like those in the list and sinners like me and you. He came to save all sinners, regardless of race or gender or ethnicity or deed. We saw in our earlier good news that Jesus came as Savior. And that is good news, that Jesus came to save. But in this part of the genealogy, friends, we learn that we need saving. This is one thing to know that Jesus came to save. And it's another thing to know that he came to save me and that he came to save you. This laundry list of sinners, if you will, this list of low-life characters often, not all, shows that anyone can be made right with God through faith in the King. And we too can be made right. Number two, God can use imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will. God can use imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will. If God can use this family tree to accomplish his purposes to bring about Messiah's birth, he can use your broken family, he can use my broken family, he can use this broken sinner, and he can use that broken sinner to do his will in the world. And friends, that is great news. So, let's close as we turn to verse 17. We've seen the genealogy introduced, we've seen it itemized, now we see it interpreted In verse 17, the genealogy ends with a bit of a summary statement. It's kind of a summary statement. Matthew has laid out his genealogy, and now he says, this is how I laid out my genealogy. That's what he says in verse 17. But it's much more than a summary statement. It is a theological point of emphasis. Matthew is making a statement, I believe, in verse 17 about the person of Jesus. It's the theological nail in the coffin of his argument, if you will. Let's read it together in verse 17. Thus, he's summing it up. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon. And 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So, here Matthew simply points out 
how he structures his genealogy. He points out that for each of the three groups in the genealogy, there are 14 names listed in each, which if you were paying attention, you would have noticed that already. But just in case you weren't, he points it out, right? 14 names listed in each. Yet we know that from other genealogies in the Bible that, uh, that th- there were more than 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus. So why did Matthew arrange it this way? Remember, it is a, not a, a complete genealogy. It's a specific genealogy, completely accepted and used by the Jews in his day. Why did he arrange it this way? Well, number one, two reasons. The first one is small. The, the second one is big. Two reasons, I think. First, it wasn't uncommon for Jewish writers to arrange their genealogies in a way that would aid their hearers to memorize it. Another, they wanted their hearers to memorize this, so they arranged it in a way that would be easier to memorize. And I think Matthew probably is doing that. But there's a theological emphasis here that I believe he's making um, that's maybe more significant. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, and I'm going to say it again, and I'm going to show you what I mean, because it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. Matthew likely chose this 14-generation arrangement because the numerical equivalent of the Hebrew consonants in David's name totals 14. That go over here? Let me say it again, and I'll show you what it means. He chose this 14-generation arrangement because the numerical equivalent of the Hebrew consonants in David's name totals 14. Now let me show you what I mean. Take a look at the, the screen behind me. So in the Hebrew language, in the Hebrew language, Matthew's native tongue, uh, when you wrote a word, there were originally no vowels. No A-E-I-O-U. It was just assumed, right? So when they wrote the name David, it would be Dalit Vav Dalit, which in English is D-V-D. Now they would know to, sit, to, to, to put in the vowels, the A and the I. But if you were to literally read this, and you can ask Herb later, because he's better at this than me, I promise. The, the D-V-D, that's, that's what it would look like. You would have a Dalit Vav Dalit or a D-V-D in English. Now, that's what David's name would look like. Now, the D or the Dalit is the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Just like it's the fourth letter in our alphabet. A, B, C, what? D, number four. You see where I'm going, right? Four. Now, take a guess. The Vav is the what? Which one? It's the sixth right? And then you get the Vav, or the the Dalit. It's the fourth. So the numerical equivalent, four, six, four. Okay, what's the simple math? It's on the screen. What does it equal? Bad math. Oh, I got bad math. Six, four, six. There we go. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. I failed elementary. Six, four, six. Now, what does that equal, Tom? Fourteen. Fourteen. Six, four, six. There we go. Four, six, four. Okay, my math is bad. Okay, well, I'll do my math later. But it should equal 14, so I'll take a look at it. So here's the icing on the cake. Here's the point. Here's the point. Jesus is the king that God promised to David. He is the one from David's lineage. He is the one that would be the Messiah. And that is his point. This is a Jewish genealogy built around the name and the history of David to show that Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne. So, who would have thought that there was so much in a simple genealogy, right? As we've looked at his genealogy this morning, 
I don't know about you, but I would expect it to be much more like much more like Jonathan's, right? Full of godly and successful people. But when we look at his genealogy, yeah, it's a little bit more shady. And yet, through these broken people, God raised up a king and a savior to save and to rule over his broken people, people like me and people like you. And friends, that, that is great news. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful that you indeed sent your son, who is the rightful heir to David's throne, the king of Israel and the king of the world. And in that, you have shown us so many bits of good news. We are grateful for it. Father, help us, we pray, now, through this Christmas season, to recall and to think about Jesus as our own king, as our own savior, and what his kingship looks like in our life. We ask it in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. All right, see you next week, guys.